Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show... 425. <laughs> I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Man, it just cracks us up every time I kind of read the numbers out there. Now they're just getting higher and higher. So welcome to this show. Oh man, just fun, fun show. Tell you what's coming in. We have the main fiction, which is Black Swan by Bruce Sterling, no less. Yes, one of the godfathers, man. Oh, go on there. Then we have an interview with Jill Hynerth, who is a cave diver and honestly just awesome. Do you know what I mean? Kind of, just a true hero. Do you know what I mean? I'm such a wimp compared to Jill. Man, what a great interview this is as well. So that is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, a couple of things just before we kick off into the main main show and the main fiction is got a little shout out for a little science fiction convention going on there in Orlando, Florida. It was on. It's on the twenty second to the twenty fourth of April, two thousand and sixteen. Oasis twenty eight, and they've got their guest of honor there, which is A. Lee Martinez. So I'll put a link onto the site there. It's just a little convention, and God, it's a million miles away from me. It would be lovely to kind of go over there and just kind of mix and mingle. But just to let you know, that's going on. So it's on the April the 22nd to the 24th in Orlando, Florida. How about that? The next little mention is, well, you 
got to push ourselves down again, do you know what I mean? Just to let you know, we are eligible for the Hugo Award in the best fan cast category. So if you think you were kind of, we deserve it, do you know what I mean? We're doing a good job. It would be lovely to kind of get, get a vote then, maybe even get the chance of being nominated. I'll tell you why we were kind of, me and Jeremy's been talking about this, and it's just the way it went on, man, last year and all this kind of, and whether it's going to go on that way or not, do you know what I mean? But just bringing it back to kind of some sort of normality, do you know what I mean? And just trying to get it away from that kind of this just dark treacle of a oh, horrible mess it turned into last last year. So we're kind of up there for nomination if you would like to do that. That would be fantastic. So we will jump into the main fiction. And like I say, Bruce Sterling, man, do you know what I mean? It's called Black Swan. The story was originally printed in Interzone, and then it was reprinted in the year's best science fiction, 15. Bruce Sterling, author, journalist, editor, and critic, was born in 1954. Best known for 10 science fiction novels, he also writes short stories, book reviews, designs, criticism, opinion columns, and introductions for books ranging from all sorts. His non-fiction works include The Hacker Crackdown, Tomorrow Now, and Shaping Things. He is a contributing editor of Wired magazine and writes a weblog. During 2005, he was the visionary in residence at the Art Centre College Design in Pasadena. In 2008, he was guest curator for the Share Festival of Digital Art and Culture in Torino, Italy, and visionary residence at the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam. Man, we've played a couple of stories by Bruce, and it's just, I remember the first time. I even got in touch with him. Do you know what I mean? Like I say, this is one of the kind of guys, my hero, my kind of growing up reading pattern. And he gave her a story. Man, it was just, do you know what I mean? It hit, the, hit the highs. We have got a fine narrator for this story. Paul Cram, who is a young and touch of gravel voice, is a bit newer to the world of audio than it is to other acting forms. Listening fans will hopefully be excited by several up-and-coming audiobook titles in the next year being voiced by him. You can listen to his audiobooks that are currently available right now through Amazon, iTunes and Audible. God, a great voice, Paul. What, what a star. Cram was most recently seen on the set of a feature film, Wilson, opposite Woody Harlson, an indie film anniversary shot in Maine, USA by movie director Jim Cole. When not on a movie set or recording in the booth, Paul can be found deep-frying chicken wings with his sister in her kitchen or quarrelling about pop culture with his little brother around the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota. You can find him on his website, Paul Cram Actor, or on IMDb. Just an honour to have, you know, two fine, you know, creative geniuses on the show. Oh, man, man. And then you've got me. <laughs> Weave through the lot of them, man. Butchering introductions and everything. There you go. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Black Swan by Bruce Sterling. The ethical journalist protects a confidential source. So I protected Massimo Montaldo. Although, I knew that wasn't his name. Massimo shambled through the tall glass doors, dropped his valise with a thump, and sat across the table. We were meeting where we always met, inside the Café Elena, a dark and cozy spot that fronts on the biggest plaza in Europe. The Elena has two rooms, 
as narrow and dignified as mahogany coffins, with lofty red ceilings. The little place has seen its share of stricken wanderers. Massimo never confided his personal troubles to me, but they were obvious, as if he'd smuggled monkeys into the cafe and hidden them under his clothes. Like every other hacker in the world, Massimo Montaldo was bright. Being Italian, he struggled to look suave. Massimo wore stain-proof, wrinkle-proof travel gear, a black merino wool jacket, an American black denim shirt, and black cargo pants. Massimo also sported black athletic trainers. Not any brand I could recognize with eerie, bubble-filled soles. These skeletal shoes of his were half-ruined. They were strapped together with rawhide bootlaces. To judge by his Swiss-Italian accent, Massimo had spent a lot of time in Geneva. Four times, he'd leaked chip secrets to me. Crisp engineering graphics, apparently snipped right out of the Swiss patent applications. However, the various bureaus in Geneva had no records of these patents. They had no records of any Massimo Montaldo, either. Each time I'd made use of Massimo's indiscretions, the traffic to my weblog had doubled. I knew that Massimo's commercial sponsor, or more likely his spymaster, was using me to manipulate the industry I covered. Big bets were going down in the market somewhere. Somebody was cashing in like a bandit. That profiteer wasn't me, and I had to doubt that it was him. I never financially speculate in the companies I cover as a journalist, because that is the road to hell. As for young Massimo, his road to hell was already well trampled. Massimo twirled the frail stem of his glass of Barolo. His shoes were wrecked, his hair was unwashed, and he looked like he'd shaved in an airplane toilet. He handled the best wine in Europe like a scorpion poised to sting his liver. Then he gulped it down. Unasked, the waiter poured him another. They know me at the Elena. Massimo and I had a certain understanding. As we chatted about Italian tech companies, he knew them from Alessi to Zanotti. I discreetly passed him useful favors. A cell phone chip, bought in another man's name, a plastic hotel pass key for a local hotel room, rented by a third party. Massimo could use these without ever showing a passport or any identification. There were eight Massimo Montaldos on Google, and none of them were him. Massimo flew in from places unknown. He laid his eggs of golden information. Then he paddled off into dark waters. I was protecting him by giving him those favors. Surely there were other people very curious about him besides myself. The second glass of Barolo eased that ugly crease in his brows. He rubbed his beak of a nose and smoothed his unruly black hair and leaned onto the thick stone table with both of his black woolen elbows. Luca, I brought something special for you this time. Are you ready for that? Something you can't even imagine. I suppose... I said. Massimo reached into his battered leather valise and brought out a no-name PC laptop 
This much-worn machine, its corners bumped with use and its keypad dingy, had one of those thick super-batteries clamped onto its base. All that extra power must have tripled the computer's weight. Small wonder that Mossimo never carried spare shoes. He busied himself with his Grammy scream, fixated by his private world there. The Elena is not a celebrity bar, which is why celebrities like it. A blonde television presenter swayed into the place. Massimo, who is now deep into his third glass, whipped his intense gaze from his laptop screen. He closely studied her curves, which were upholstered in Gucci. An Italian television presenter bears the relationship to news that American fast food bears to food. So, I couldn't feel sorry for her, yet I didn't like the way he sized her up. Genius gears were turning visibly in Massimo's brilliant geek head. That woman had all the raw, compelling appeal to him of some difficult math problem. Left alone with her, he would chew on that problem until something clicked loose and fell into his hands, and to do her credit, she could feel that. She opened her dainty crocodile purse and slipped on a big pair of sunglasses. Signor Montaldo, I said. He was rapt. Massimo! This woke him from his lustful reverie. He twisted the computer and exhibited his screen to me. I don't design chips, but I've seen the programs used for that purpose. Back in the 1980s, there were 30 different chip design programs. None of them are nativized in the Italian language, because every chip geek in the world speaks English. This program was in Italian. It looked elegant. It looked like a very stylish way to design computer chips. Computer chip engineers are not stylish people. Not in this world, anyway. Massimo tapped at his weird screen with a gnawed fingernail. This is just a cheap 24K embed. But do you see these? Yes, I do. What are they? These are memristors. In heartfelt alarm, I stared around the cafe. But nobody in the Elena knew or cared in the least about Massimo's stunning revelation. He could have thrown memristers onto their tables in heaps. They'd never realize that he was tossing them the keys to riches. I could explain now, in grueling detail, exactly what memristers are and how different they are from any standard electronic component. Suffice to understand that, in electronic engineering, memristers did not exist. Not at all. They were technically possible. We'd known that for 30 years, since the 1980s. But nobody had ever manufactured one. A chip with memristors was like a racetrack where the jockeys rode unicorns. I sipped the Barolo so I could find my voice again. You brought me schematics for memristors? What happened? Did your UFO crash? That's very witty, Luca. You can't hand me something like that. What on earth do you expect me to do with that? I'm not giving these memristor plans to you. I've decided to give them to Olivetti. I will tell you what to do. You make one confidential call to your good friend, the Olivetti Chief Technical Officer. You tell him to look hard in his junk folder where he keeps the spam with no return address. 
Interesting things will happen then. He'll be grateful to you. Olivetti is a fine company, I said, but they're not the outfit to handle a monster like this. A memorister is strictly for the big boys. Intel, Samsung, Fujitsu. Massimo laced his hands together on the table. He must have been at prayer, and stared at me with weary sarcasm. Luca, he said, don't you ever get tired of seeing Italian genius repressed? The Italian chip business is rather modest. It can't always make its ends meet. I spent fifteen years covering chip tech in Route 128 in Boston, when the almighty dollar ruled the tech world. I was glad that I'd made those connections. But times do change. Nations change. Industries change. Industries change the times. Massimo had just shown me something that changes industries. A disruptive innovation. A breaker of the rules. This matter is serious, I said. Yes, all of Eddie's people do read my weblog. They even comment there. But that doesn't mean that I can leak some breakthrough that deserves a Nobel Prize. Olivetti would want to know, they would have to know, the source of that. He shook his head. They don't want to know, and neither do you. Oh yes, I most definitely do want to know. No, you don't. Trust me. Massimo, I'm a journalist. That means that I always want to know, and I never trust anybody. He slapped the table. Maybe you're a journalist when they still printed paper journals. But your dot-com journals are all dead. Nowadays, you're a blogger. You're an influence peddler, and you spread rumors for a living. Massimo shrugged, because he didn't think he was insulting me. So shut up. Just do what you always do. It's all I'm asking. That might be all he was asking, but my whole business was in asking. Who created that chip? I asked. I know it wasn't you. You know a lot about tech investment, but you're not Leonardo da Vinci. No, I'm not Leonardo da Vinci. He emptied his glass. Look, I know that you're not even Massimo Montaldo, whoever that is. I'll do a lot to get news out on my blog, but I'm not going to act as your cutout in a scheme like this. That's totally unethical. Where did you steal that chip? Who made it? What are they, Chinese super-engineers in some bunker under Beijing? Massimo was struggling not to laugh at me. I can't reveal that. Could we have another round? Maybe a sandwich? I need a nice toasty pancetta. I got the waiter's attention. I noted that the TV star's boyfriend had shown up. Her boyfriend was not her husband. Unfortunately... I was not in the celebrity tabloid business. It wasn't the first time I'd missed a good bet by consorting with computer geeks. So you're an industrial spy, I told him. And you must be Italian to boot because you're such a patriot about it. Okay, so you stole those plans somewhere. I won't ask you how or why. But let me give you some good advice. No sane man would leak that to Olivetti. Olivetti's a consumer outfit. They make pretty toys for cute secretaries. A memorister chip is dynamite. Massimo was staring raptly at the TV blonde as he awaited his sandwich. Massimo, pay attention. 
If you leak something that advanced, that radical, a chip like that could change the world's military balance of power. Never mind Olivetti. Big American spy agencies with three letters in their names will come calling. Massimo scratched his dirty scalp and rolled his eyes in derision. Are you so terrorized by the CIA? They don't read your sorry little one-man tech blog. This crass remark irritated me keenly. Listen to me, boy genius. Do you know what the CIA does here in Italy? We're their rendition playground. People vanish off the streets. Anybody can vanish off the streets. I do it all the time. I took out my moleskin notebook and my shiny rot-ring technical pen. I placed them both on the Elena's neat little marble table. Then, I slipped them both back inside my jacket. Massimo? I'm trying hard to be sensible about this. Your snotty attitude is not helping your case with me. With an effort, my source composed himself. It's all very simple. He lied. I've been here a while, and now I'm tired of this place. So I'm leaving. I want to hand the future of the electronics to an Italian company, with no questions asked and no strings attached. You won't help me do that simple thing? No, of course I won't. Not under conditions like these. I don't know where you got that, that data. What, how, when, whom, or why? I don't even know who you are. Do I look like that kind of idiot? Unless you tell me your story, I can't trust you. He made that evil gesture. I had no balls. Twenty years ago, well, twenty-five, and we would have stepped outside the bar. Of course I was angry with him, but I also knew he was about to crack. My source was drunk, and he was clearly in trouble. He didn't need a fistfight with a journalist. He needed confession. Massimo put a bold sneer on his face, watching himself in one of Elena's tall, spotted mirrors. If this tiny gadget is too big for your closed mind, then I've got to find another blogger. A blogger with some guts. Great. Sure. Go do that. You might try Pepe Grillo. Massimo tore his gaze from his own reflection. That washed-up TV comedian? What does he know about technology? Try Berlusconi, then. He owns all the television stations and half the Italian internet. Prime Minister Berlusconi is just the kind of hustler you need. He'll free you from all your troubles. He'll make you minister of something. Massimo lost all patience. I don't need that. I've been to a lot of versions of Italy. Yours is a complete disgrace. I don't know how you people get along with yourselves. Now the story was tearing loose. I offered an encouraging nod. How many versions of Italy do you need, Massimo? I have 64 versions of Italy. He patted his thick laptop. Got them all right here. I humored him. Only 64? His tipsy face turned red. I had to borrow CERN's supercomputers to calculate all those coordinates. Thirty-two Italys were too few. A hundred twenty-eight? I'd never have the time to visit all those. And as for your Italy, well, I 
wouldn't be here at all if it wasn't for the Turinese girl. Cherchez la femme, I told him. It's the oldest story in the world. I did her some favors, he admitted, mournfully twisting his wine glass. Like with you, but much more so. I felt lost, but I knew that his story was coming. Once I'd coaxed it out of him, I could put it into better order later. So tell me, what did she do to you? She dumped me, he said. He was telling the truth, but with a lost, forlorn, bewildered air, like he couldn't believe it himself. She dumped me, and she married the president of France. Massimo glanced up, his eyelashes wet with grief. I don't blame her. I know why she did that. I'm a very handy guy for a woman like her, but, mother of God, I'm not the president of France. No, no, you're not the president of France, I agreed. The president of France was a hyperactive Hungarian Jewish guy who liked to sing karaoke songs. President Nicolas Sarkozy was an exceedingly unlikely character, but he was odd in a very different way from Massimo Montaldo. Massimo's voice was cracking with passion. She says that he'll make her the first lady of Europe. All I've got to offer her is insider trading hints and a few extra millions for her millions. The waiter brought Massimo a toasted sandwich. Despite his broken heart, Massimo was starving. He tore into his food like a chained dog, then glanced up from his mayonnaise dip. Do I sound jealous? I'm not jealous. Massimo was bitterly jealous. But I shook my head so as to encourage him. I can't be jealous of a woman like her, Massimo lied. Eric Clapton can be jealous. Mick Jagger can be jealous. She's a rock star's groupie who became the premier dame of France. She married Sarkozy. Your world is full of journalists, spies, cops, creeps, whatever. And not for one minute did they ever stop and consider, Oh, this must be the work of a computer geek from another world. No, I agreed. Nobody ever imagines that. I called the waiter back and ordered myself a double espresso. The waiter seemed quite pleased at the way things were going for me. They were a kindly bunch at the Elena. Frederick Nietzsche had been one of their favorite patrons. Their dark old mahogany walls had absorbed all kinds of lunacy. Massimo jabbed a sandwich in the dip and licked his fingers. So if I leak a memristor chip to you, nobody will ever stop and say, Hmm, some unknown geek eating a sandwich in Torino is the most important man in the world technology, because that truth is inconceivable. Massimo stabbed a roaming olive with a toothpick. His hands were shaking with rage, romantic heartbreak, and frustrated fury. He was also drunk. He glared at me. You're not following what I tell you. Are you really that stupid? I do understand, I assured him. Of course I understand. I'm a computer geek myself. You know who designed that memristor chip, Luca? 
You did it. You. But not here, not in this version of Italy. Here you're just some small-time tech journalist. You created that device in my Italy. In my Italy, you are the guru of computational aesthetics. You're a famous author. You're a culture critic. You're a multi-talented genius. Here, you've got no guts and no imagination. You're so entirely useless here that you can't even change your own world. It was hard to say why I believed him, but I did. I believed him instantly. Massimo devoured his food to the last scrap. He thrust his bare plate aside and pulled a huge nylon wallet from his cargo pants. The silver-stuffed wallet had color-coded plastic pop-up tags, like the monster files of some Orwellian bureaucracy. Twenty different kinds of paper currency jammed in there. A huge rifling file of vari-colored plastic ID cards. He selected a large bill and tossed it contemptuously onto the Elena's cold marble table. It looked very much like money. It looked much more like money than the money that I handled every day. It had a splendid portrait of Galileo, and it was denominated in Euro Lira. Then, he rose and stumbled out of the cafe. I hastily slipped the weird bill in my pocket. I threw some euros onto the table. Then, I pursued him. With his head down, muttering and sour, Massimo was weaving across the millions of square stone cobbles of the huge Piazza Vittorio Veneto. As if through long experience, he found the emptiest spot in the plaza, a stony desert between a handsome line of ornate lampposts and the sleek steel railings of an underground parking garage. He dug into a trouser pocket and plucked out tethered foam earplugs, the kind you get from El Italia for long overseas flights. Then he flipped his laptop open. I caught up with him. What are you doing over here? Looking for Wi-Fi signals? I'm leaving. He tucked the foam plugs in his ears. Mind if I come along? When I count to three, he told me too loudly, you have to jump high into the air. Also, stay within range of my laptop. All right, sure. Oh, and put your hands over your ears. I objected. How can I hear you count to three if I have my hands over my ears? Uno. He pressed the F1 function key, and his laptop screen blazed with sudden light. Due. The F2 emitted a humming, crackling buzz. Tre. He hopped in the air. Thunder blasted. My lungs were crushed in a violent billow of wind. My feet stung as if I'd been burned. Massimo staggered for a moment then turned, by instinct, back toward the Elena. Let's go, he shouted. He plucked one yellow earplug from his head. Then he tripped. I caught his computer as he stumbled. Its monster battery was sizzling hot. Massimo grabbed his overheated machine. He stuffed it awkwardly into his valise. Massimo had tripped on a loose cobblestone. We were standing in a steaming pile of loose cobblestones. Somehow, these cobblestones had been plucked from the pavement beneath our shoes and scattered around like dice. Of course we were not alone. 
Some witnesses sat in the vast plaza, the everyday Italians of Turin, sipping their drinks at little tables under distant, elegant umbrellas. They were sensibly minding their own business. A few were gazing, puzzled, at the rich blue evening sky, as if they suspected some passing sonic boom. Certainly none of them cared about us. We limped back toward the café. My shoes squeaked, like the shoes of a bad TV comedian. The cobbles under our feet had broken and tumbled, and the seams of my shoes had gone loose. My shining, patent-leather shoes were foul and grimy. We stepped through the arched double doors of the Elena, and somehow, despite all sense and reason, I found some immediate comfort, because the Elena was the Elena. It had these round marble tables with their curvilinear legs, those maroon leather chairs with their shiny brass studs, those colossal time-stained mirrors, and a smell I hadn't noticed there in years. Cigarettes. Everyone in the cafe was smoking. The air in the bar was cooler. It felt chilly, even. People wore sweaters. Massimo had friends there, a woman and her man. This woman beckoned us over, and the man, although he knew Massimo, was clearly unhappy to see him. This man was Swiss, but he wasn't the jolly kind of Swiss I was used to seeing in Turin, some harmless Swiss banker on holiday who pops over the Alps to pick up some ham and cheese. This Swiss guy was young, yet as tough as old nails, with aviator shades and a long, narrow scar in his hairline. He wore black nylon gloves and a raw canvas jacket with holster room in its armpits. The woman had tucked her impressive bust into a hand-knitted peasant sweater. Her sweater was gaudy, complex and aggressively gorgeous, and so was she. She was smoldering, eyes thick with mascara and talon-like red-painted nails, and a thick gold watch that could have doubled as brass knuckles. So, Massimo is back, said the woman. She had a cordial yet guarded tone, like a woman who has escaped a man's bed and needs compelling reasons to return. I brought a friend for you tonight, said Massimo, helping himself to a chair. So I see. And what does your friend have in mind for us? Does he play backgammon? The pair had a backgammon set on their table. The Swiss mercenary rattled dice in a cup. We're very good at backgammon, he told me mildly. He had the extremely menacing tone of a practice killer who can't even bother to be scary. My friend here is from the American CIA, said Massimo. We're here to do some serious drinking. How nice! I can speak American to you then, Mr. CIA, the woman volunteered. She aimed a dazzling smile at me. What is your favorite American baseball team? I root for the Boston Red Sox. I love the Seattle Green Sox, she told us, just to be coy. The waiter brought us a bottle of Croatian fruit brandy. The peoples of the Balkans take their drinking seriously, so their bottles tend toward a rather florid design. This bottle was frankly fantastic. It was squat, acid-etched, curvilinear, and flute-necked, 
and with a triple portrait of Tito, Nasser, and Nero, all toasting one another. There were thick flakes of gold floating in its paralyzing murk. Massimo yanked the gilded cork, stole a woman's cigarettes, and tucked an unfiltered cig into the corner of his mouth. With his slopping shot glass in his fingers, he was a different man. Zivali, the woman pronounced, and we all tossed back a hearty shot of venom. The temptress chose to call herself Svetlana, while her Swiss bodyguard was calling himself Simon. I had naturally thought it was insane for Massimo to denounce me as a CIA spy, yet this gamut was clearly helping the situation. As an American spy, I wasn't required to say much. No one expected me to know anything useful or to do anything worthwhile. However, I was hungry, so I ordered a snack plate. The attentive waiter was not my favorite Elena waiter. He might have been a cousin. He brought us raw onions, pickles, black bread, a hefty link of sausage, and a wooden tub of creamed butter. We also got a notched pig iron knife and a battered chopping board. Simon put the backgammon set away. All these crude and ugly things on the table, the knife, the chopping board, even the bad sausage, had all been made in Italy. I could see little Italian makers' marks hand-etched into all of them. So you're hunting here in Torino, like us, probed Svetlana. I smiled back at her. Yes, certainly. So what do you plan to do with him when you catch him? Will you put him on trial? A fair trial is the American way, I told them. Simon thought this remark was quite funny. Simon was not an evil man by nature. Simon probably suffered long nights of existential regret whenever he cut a man's throat. So, Simon offered, caressing the rim of his dirty shot glass with one nylon glove finger. So, even the Americans expect the rat to show his whiskers in here. The Elena does pull a crowd, I agreed. So it all makes good sense, don't you think? Everyone loves to be told that their thinking makes good sense. They were happy to hear me allege this. Maybe I didn't look or talk much like an American agent, but when you're a spy and guzzling fruit brandy and gnawing sausage, these minor inconsistencies don't upset anybody. We were all being sensible. Leaning his black elbows on our little table, Massimo weighed in. The rat is clever. He plans to sneak over the Alps again. He'll go back to Nice and Marseille. He'll rally his militias. Simon stopped, with a knife-stabbed chunk of blood sausage on the way to his gullet. You really believe that? Of course I do. What did Napoleon say? The death of a million men means nothing to a man like me. It's impossible to corner Nicholas the Rat. The Rat has a star of destiny. The woman watched Massimo's eyes. Massimo was one of her informants. Being a woman, she had heard his lies before and was used to them. She also knew that no informant lies all the time. Then he's here in Torino tonight, she concluded. Massimo offered her nothing. She immediately looked to me. I silently stroked my chin in a sagely fashion. Listen, American spy, she told me politely. 
You Americans are simple, honest people. So good at tapping phone calls. It won't hurt your feelings any if Nicholas Sarkozy is found floating face down in the river Po. Instead of teasing me here, as Massimo was so fond of doing, why don't you just tell me where Sarkozy is? I do want to know. I knew very well where President Nicholas Sarkozy was supposed to be. He was supposed to be in the Elysee Palace, carrying out extensive economic reforms. Simon was more urgent. You do want us to know where the rat is, don't you? He showed me a set of teeth edged in Swiss gold. Let us know. That would save the international courts of justice a lot of trouble. I didn't know Nicholas Sarkozy. I had met him twice, when he was French Minister of Communication, when he proved that he knew a lot about the Internet. Still, if Nicolas Sarkozy was not the President of France, and if he was not in the Elysee Palace, then, being a journalist, I had a pretty good guess of his whereabouts. Churches la femme, I said. Simon and Svetlana exchanged thoughtful glances. Knowing one another well, and knowing their situation, they didn't have to debate their next course of action. Simon signaled the waiter. Svetlana threw a gleaming coin onto the table. They bundled their backgammon set and kicked their leather chairs back. They left the cafe without another word. Massimo rose. He sat in Svetlana's abandoned chair so that he could keep a wary eye on the cafe's double door to the street. Then... He helped himself to her abandoned pack of Turkish cigarettes. I examined Svetlana's abandoned coin. It was large, round, and minted from pure silver, with a gaudy engraving of the Taj Mahal. Fifty dinars, it read in Latin script, Hindi, Arabic, and Cyrillic. The booze around here really gets on top of me, Massimo complained. Unsteadily, he stuffed the ornate cork back into the brandy bottle. He set a slashed pickle on a buttered slice of black bread. Is he coming here? Who? Nicholas Sarkozy. N Nicholas the Rat. Oh, him, said Massimo, chewing his bread. In this version of Italy, I think Sarkozy's already dead. God knows there's enough people trying to kill him. The Arabs, Chinese, Africans... He turned the south of France upside down. There's a bounty on him big enough to buy Olivetti. Not that there's much left of Olivetti. I had my summer jacket on, and I was freezing. Why is it so damn cold in here? That's climate change, said Massimo. Not in this Italy, in your Italy. In your Italy, you've got a messed up climate. In this Italy, it's the human race that's messed up. Here, as soon as Chernobyl collapsed, a big French reactor blew up on the German border, and they all went for each other's throats. Here, NATO and the European Union are even deader than the Warsaw Pact. Massimo was proud to be telling me this. I drummed my fingers on the chilly tabletop. It took you a while to find that out, did it? The big transition... Always hinges in the 1980s, said Massimo. Because that's when we made the big breakthroughs. In your Italy, you mean? That's right. Before the 1980s, 
nobody understood the physics of parallel worlds. But after that transition, we could pack a zero-point energy generator into a laptop. Just boil the whole problem down into one single microelectronic mechanical system. So you've got zero-point energy memchips, I said. He chewed more bread in a pickle. Then he nodded. You've got mems chips, and you were offering me some fucking lousy memrister? You must think I'm a real chump. You're not a chump. Massimo sought a fresh slice of bad bread. But you're from the wrong Italy. It was your own stupid world that made you this stupid, Luca. In my Italy, you were one of the few men who could talk sense to my dad. My dad used to confide in you. He trusted you. He thought you were a great writer. You wrote his biography. Massimo Montaldo Sr., I said. Massimo was startled. Yeah, that's him. He narrowed his eyes. You're not supposed to know that. I had guessed it. A lot of news is made from good guesses. Tell me how you feel about that, I said, because this is always a useful question for an interviewer who has lost his way. I feel desperate, he told me, grinning. Desperate. But I feel much less desperate here than I was when I was the spoilt brat, dope addict, son of the world's most famous scientist. Before you met me, Massimo Montaldo, had you ever heard of any Massimo Montaldo? No, I never did. That's right. I'm never in any of the other Italys. There's never any other Massimo Montaldo. I never meet another version of myself, and I never meet another version of my father, either. That's got to mean something crucial. I know it means something important. Yes, I told him. That surely does mean something. I think, he said, that I know what it means. It means that space and time are not just about physics and computation. It means that human beings really matter in the course of world events. It means that human beings can truly change the world. It means that our actions have consequence. The human angle, I said, always makes a good story. It's true. But try telling that story. He said, and he looked at the point of tears. Tell the story to any human being. Go on, do it. Tell anybody in here. Help yourself. I looked around the Elena. There were some people in there, the local customers, normal people, decent people, maybe a dozen of them. Not remarkable people, not freakish, not weird or strange, but normal. Being normal people, they were quite at ease with their lot and accepting their daily existences. Once upon a time, the Elena used to carry daily newspapers. Newspapers were supplied for customers on those special long wooden bars. In my world, the Elena didn't do that anymore. Too few newspapers and too much internet. Here, the Elena still had those newspapers on those handy wooden bars. I rose from my chair, and I had a good look at them. There were stylish imported newspapers, written in Hindi, Arabic, and Serbo-Croatian. I had to look hard to find a local paper in Italian. There were two both printed on a foul gray paper full of flecks of badly pulped wood. I took the larger Italian paper to the cafe table. 
I flipped through the headlines, and I read all the lead paragraphs. I knew immediately I was reading lies. It wasn't that the news was so terrible or so deceitful, but it was clear that the people reading this newspaper were not expected to make any practical use of news. The Italians were a modest, colonial people. The news that they were offered was a set of feeble fantasies. All the serious news was going on elsewhere. There was something very strong and lively in the world called the Non-Aligned Movement. It stretched from the Baltics all the way to the Balkans, throughout the Arab world, and all the way through India. Japan and China were places that the giant non-aligned superpower treated with guarded respect. America was some kind of humbled farm where the Yankees spent their time in church. Those other places, the places that used to matter, France, Germany, Britain, Brussels, these were obscured and poor and miserable places. Their names and locales were badly spelled. Cheap black ink was coming off on my fingers. I no longer had questions for Massimo, except for one. When do we get out of here? Massimo buttered his tattered slice of black bread. I was never searching for the best of all possible worlds, he told me. I was looking for the best of all possible me's. And in Italy like this Italy, I really matter. Your version of Italy is pretty backward, but this world had a nuclear exchange. European had a civil war, and most cities in the Soviet Union are big puddles of black glass. I took my moleskin notebook from my jacket pocket. How pretty and sleek that fancy notebook looked next to that gray pulp newspaper. You don't mind if I jot this down, I hope. I know this all sounds bad to you, but trust me, that's not how history works. History doesn't have any badness or goodness. This world has a future. The food's cheap, the climate is stable, the women are gorgeous, and since there's only three billion people left alive on Earth, there's a lot of room. Massimo pointed his crude sausage knife at Café's glass double door. Nobody here ever asks for ID. Nobody cares about passports. They never even heard of electronic banking. Smart guy like you. You could walk out of here and start a hundred tech companies. If I didn't get my throat cut... Oh, people always overstate that little problem. The big problem is, you know, who wants to work that hard? I got to know this place because I knew that I could be a hero here. Bigger than my father. I'd be smarter than him. Richer than him. More famous, more powerful. I would be better. But that is a burden. Improving the world? That doesn't make me happy at all. That's a curse. It's like slavery. What does make you happy, Massimo? Clearly, Massimo had given this matter some thought. Waking up in a fine hotel with a gorgeous stranger in my bed. That's the truth. And... That would be true of every man in every world if he was honest. Massimo tapped the neck of the garish brandy bottle with the back of the carving knife. My girlfriend, Svetlana, she understands all that pretty well, but there's one other thing. I drink here. I like to drink, I admit that, but they really drink around here. This version of Italy is the almighty Yugoslav sphere of influence.
I had been doing fine so far, given my circumstances. Suddenly, the nightmare sprang upon me. Unfiltered, total, and wholesale. Chills of terror climbed my spine like icy scorpions. I felt a strong, irrational, animal urge to abandon my comfortable chair and run for my life. I could run out of the handsome cafe and into the twilight streets of Turin. I knew Turin, and I knew that Massimo would never find me there. Likely he wouldn't bother to look. I also knew that I would run straight into the world so badly described by that grimy newspaper. That terrifying world would be where, henceforth, I existed. That world would not be strange to me, or strange to anybody, because that world was reality. It was not a strange world, it was a normal world. It was I, me, who was strange here. I was desperately strange here. And that was normal. This conclusion made me reach for my shot glass. I drank. It was not what I would call good brandy. It did have strong character. It was powerful and it was ruthless. It was a brandy beyond good and evil. My feet ached and itched in my ruined shoes. Blisters were rising and stinging. Maybe I should consider myself lucky that my aching alien feet were still attached to my body. My feet were not simply slashed off and abandoned in some black limbo between the worlds. I put my shot glass down. Can we leave now? Is that possible? Absolutely, said Massimo, sinking deeper into his cozy red leather chair. Let's sober up first with a coffee, eh? It's always Arabic coffee here at the Alina. They boil it in big brass pots. I showed him the silver coin. No, she settled the bill for us, eh? So let's just leave. Massimo stared at the coin, flipped it from head to tails, then slipped it in a pants pocket. Fine. I'll describe our options. We can call this place the Yugoslav Italy. And, like I said... This place has a lot of potential, but there are other versions. He started ticking off his fingers. There's an Italy where the no-nukes movement won big in the 1980s. You remember them? Gorbachev and Reagan made world peace. Everybody disarmed and was happy. There were no more wars. The economy boomed everywhere. Peace and justice and... Pro There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Prosperity everywhere on Earth. So the climate exploded. The last Italian survivors are living high in the Alps. I stared at him. No. Oh, yes. Yes, and those are very nice people. They really treasure and support each other. There are hardly any of them left alive. They're very sweet and civilized. They're wonderful people. You'd be amazed what nice Italians they are. Can't we just go straight back to my own version of Italy? Not directly, no. But there's a version of Italy quite close to yours. After John Paul I died, they quickly elected another pope. He was not that Polish anti-communist. Instead, that new pope was a pedophile. There was a colossal scandal and the church collapsed. In that version of Italy, even the Muslims are secular. The churches are brothels and discotheques. They never use the words faith or morality. Massimo sighed, then rubbed his nose. You might think the death of religion would make a lot of difference to people. Well, it doesn't, because they think it's normal. They don't miss believing in God any more than you miss believing in Marx. So first we can go to that Italy, and then nearby into my own Italy. Is that the idea? That Italy is boring. The girls are boring. They're so matter-of-fact about sex, they're that. They're like girls from Holland. Massimo shook his head ruefully. Now I'm going to tell you about a version of Italy that's truly different and interesting. I was staring at a round of the sausage, the bright piece of gristle, and it seemed to be the severed foot of some small animal. All right, Massimo, tell me. Whenever I move from world to world, I always materialize in the Piazza Vittorio Veneto, he said, because that plaza is so huge and usually pretty empty, and I don't want to hurt anyone with the explosion. Plus, I know Torino. I know all the tech companies here, so I can make my way around. But once, I saw a Torino with no electronics. I wiped clammy sweat from my hands with the cafe's rough cloth napkin. Tell me, Massimo, how did you feel about that? It's incredible. There's no electricity there. There's no wires for the electrical trolleys. There are plenty of people there, very well-dressed, and bright-colored lights, and some things that are flying in the sky, big aircraft, big as ocean liners. So, they've got some kind of power there, but it's not electricity. They stopped using electricity somehow, since the 1980s. A Turin with no electricity, I repeated, to convince him that I was listening. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? How could Italy abandon electricity and replace it with another power source. I think that they use cold fusion, because cold fusion was another world-changing event from the 1980s. I can't explore that, Torino, because where would I plug in my laptop? But you could find out how they do all that, because you're just a journalist, right? All you need is a pencil. I'm not a big expert on physics, I said. My God, I keep forgetting I'm talking to somebody from the hopeless George Bush world. He said, Listen, stupid, physics isn't complicated. Physics is very simple and elegant because it's structured. I knew that from the age of three. 
I'm just a writer. I'm not a scientist. Well, surely you've heard of consilience. No, never. Yes, you have. Even people in your stupid world know about consilience. Consilience means that all forms of human knowledge have an underlying unity. The gleam in his eyes was tiring me. Why does that matter? It makes all the difference between your world and my world. In your world, there was a great physicist once, Dr. Italo Calvino. Famous literary writer, I said. He died in the 1980s. Calvino didn't die in my Italy, he said. Because in my Italy, Italo Calvino completed his six core principles. Calvino wrote six memos, I said. He wrote six memos for the next millennium. And he only finished five of those before he had a stroke and died. In my world, Calvino did not have a stroke. He had a stroke of genius instead. When Calvino completed his work, those six lectures weren't just memos. He delivered six major public addresses at Princeton. When Calvino gave that sixth, great, final speech on consistency, the halls were crammed with physicists. Mathematicians, too. My father was there. I took refuge in my notebook. Six core principles, I scribbled hastily. Calvino, Princeton, consilience. Calvino's parents were both scientists, Massimo insisted. Calvino's brother was also a scientist. His Alupo literary group was obsessed with mathematics. When Calvino delivered lectures worthy of a genius, nobody was surprised. I knew Calvino was a genius, I said. I'd been young, but you can't write in Italian and not know Calvino. I'd seen him trudging the porticos in Turin, hunched-shouldered, slapping his feet, always looking sly and preoccupied. You only had to see the man to know that he had an agenda like no other writer in the world. When Calvino finished his six lectures, mused Massimo, they carried him off to CERN in Geneva, and they made him work on the semantic web. The semantic web works beautifully, by the way. It's not like your foul little internet, so full of spam and crime. He wiped the sausage knife on an oil-stained napkin. I should qualify that remark. The semantic web works beautifully, in the Italian language, because the semantic web was built by Italians. They had a little bit of help from a few French Ulipo writers. Can we leave this place now, and visit this Italy you boast so much about, and then drop by my Italy? That situation is complicated, Massimo hedged and stood up. Watch my bag, will you? He then departed to the toilet, leaving me to wonder about all the ways in which our situation could be complicated. Now I was sitting alone, staring at that corked brandy bottle. My brain was boiling. The strangeness of my situation had broken some important throttle inside my head. I considered myself bright, because I could write in three languages, and I understood technical matters. I could speak to engineers, designers, programmers, venture capitalists, and government officials on serious, adult issues that we all agreed were important. So yes, surely I was bright. But I'd spent my whole life being far more stupid than I was at this moment. In this terrible extremity, here in the cigarette-choked Elena, 
where the half-ragged denizens pored over their grimy newspapers, I knew I possessed a true potential for genius. I was Italian, and being Italian, I had the knack to shake the world to its roots. My genius had never embraced me, because genius had never been required of me. I had been stupid, because I dwelled in a stupefied world. I now lived in no world at all. I had no world. So my thoughts were rocketing through empty space. Ideas changed the world. Thoughts changed the world, and thoughts could be written down. I had forgotten that writing could have such urgency, that writing could matter to history, that literature might have consequence. Strangely, tragically, I'd forgotten that such things were even possible. Calvino had died of a stroke. I knew that. Some artery broke inside the man's skull as he gamely struggled with his manifesto to transform the next millennium. Surely that was a great loss, but how could anybody guess the extent of that loss? A stroke of genius is a black swan, beyond prediction, beyond expectation. If a black swan never arrives, how on earth could its absence be guessed? The chasm between Massimo's version of Italy and my Italy was invisible, yet all-encompassing. It was exactly like the stark difference between the man I was now and the man I'd been one short hour ago. A black swan can never be predicted, expected, or categorized. A black swan, when it arrives, cannot even be recognized as a black swan. When the black swan assaults us with the wingbeats of some rapist Jupiter, then we must rewrite history. Maybe a newsman writes a news story, which is history's first draft. Yet, the news never shouts that history has black swans. The news never tells us that our universe is contingent, that our fate hinges on changes too huge for us to comprehend, or too small for us to see. We can never accept the black swan's arbitrary carelessness. So our news is never about how the news can make no sense to human beings. Our news is always about how well we understand. Whenever our wits are shattered by the impossible, we swiftly knit the world back together again so that our wits can return to us. We pretend that we've lost nothing, not one single illusion. Especially, certainly, we never lose our minds. No matter how strange the news is, we're always sane and sensible. That is what we tell each other. Massimo returned to our table. He was very drunk, and he looked greenish. You ever been in a squat-down Turkish toilet? He said, pinching his nose. Trust me, don't go in there. I think we should go to your Italy now, I said. I could do that, he allowed idly. Although I've made some trouble for myself there. My real problem is you. Why am I trouble? There's another Luca in my Italy. He's not like you. Because he's a great author, and a very dignified and very wealthy man. He wouldn't find you funny. I considered this. He was inviting me to be bitterly jealous of myself. I couldn't manage that, yet I was angry anyway. Am I funny, Massimo? He stopped drinking, but that killer brandy was still percolating through his gut. Yes, you're funny, Luca. You're weird. 
You're a terrible joke, especially in this version of Italy. And especially now that you're finally catching on. You've got a look on your face now like a drowned fish. He belched into his fist. Now, at last, you can think that you understand, but no, you don't. Not yet. Listen, in order to arrive here, I created this world. When I press the function 3 key, and the field transports me here, without me as the observer, this universe doesn't even exist. I glanced around the thing that Massimo called the universe. It was an Italian cafe. The marble table in front of me was every bit as solid as a rock. Everything around me was very solid, normal, realistic, acceptable, and predictable. Of course, I told him. And you also created my universe, too, because you're not just a black swan. You're God. Black swan. Is that what you call me? He smirked and preened in the mirror. You journalists need a tagline for everything. You always wear black, I said. Does that keep our dirt from showing? Massimo buttoned his black woolen jacket. It gets worse, he told me. When I press that function two key, before the field settles in, I generate millions of potential histories, billions of histories, all with their souls, ethics, thoughts, histories, destinies, whatever. Worlds blink into existence for a few nanoseconds while the chirp runs through the program. Then they all blink out, as if they never were. That's how you move from world to world? That's right, my friend. This ugly duckling can fly. The Elena's waiter arrived to tidy up our table. A rice pudding? he asked. Massimo was cordial. No, thank you, sir. Got some very nice chocolate in this week, all the way from South America. My, that's the very best kind of chocolate. Massimo jabbed his hand into a cargo pocket. I believe I need some chocolate. What will you give me for this? The waiter examined it carefully. This is a woman's engagement ring. Yes, it is. It can't be a real diamond, though. This stone's much too big to be a real diamond. You're an idiot, said Massimo. But I don't care much. I've got a big appetite for sweets. Why don't you bring me an entire chocolate pie? The waiter shrugged and left us. So, Massimo resumed, I wouldn't call myself a god because I'm much better described as several million billion gods. Except, you know, that the zero-point transport field always settles down. Then, here I am. I'm standing outside some cafe in a cloud of dirt with my feet aching. With nothing to my name except what I've got in my brain and my pockets. It's always like that. The door of the Elena banged open with the harsh jangle of brass Indian bells. A gang of five men stomped in. I might have taken them for cops because they had jackets, belts, hats, batons, and pistols, but tyranny's cops do not arrive on duty drunk. Nor do they wear scarlet armbands with crossed lightning bolts. The cafe fell silent as the new guests muscled up to the dented bar. Bellowing threats, they proceeded to shake down the staff. Massimo turned up his collar and gazed serenely at his knotted hands. Massimo was studiously minding his own business. He was in his corner, silent, black, 
inexplicable. He might have been at prayer. I didn't turn to stare at the intruders. It wasn't a pleasant scene. But even for a stranger, it wasn't hard to understand. The door of the men's room opened. A short man in a trench coat emerged. He had a dead cigar clenched in his teeth and a snappy Alan Delon fedora. He was surprisingly handsome. People always underestimated the good looks, the male charm of Nicholas Sarkozy. Sarkozy sometimes seemed a little odd when sunbathing half-naked in newsstand tabloids, but in person, his charisma was overwhelming. He was a man that any world had to reckon with. Sarkozy glanced around the cafe for a matter of seconds. Then he sidled, silent and decisive, along the dark mahogany wall. He bent one elbow. There was a thunderclap. Massimo pitched face forward onto the small marble table. Sarkozy glanced with mild chagrin at the smoking hole blown through the pocket of his stylish trench coat. Then he stared at me. Oh, that journalist, he said. You've got a good memory for faces, Monsieur Sarkozy. That's right, asshole, I do. His Italian was bad, but it was better than my French. Are you still eager to protect your dead source here? Sarkozy gave Massimo's heavy chair one quick, vindictive kick. And the dead man, and his chair, and his table, and his ruined, gushing head all fell to the hard cafe floor with one complicated clatter. There's your big scoop of a story, my friend, Sarkozy told me. I just gave that to you. You should use that in your lying, calming magazine. Then he barked orders at the uniformed thugs. They grouped themselves around him in a helpful cluster, their faces pale with respect. You can come out now, baby, crowed Sarkozy and she emerged from the men's room. She was wearing a cute little gangster mall hat and a tailored camouflage jacket. She lugged a big black guitar case. She also had a primitive radio telephone bigger than a brick. How he'd enticed that woman to lurk for half an hour in the reeking cafe toilet, that I'll never know. But it was her. It was definitely her, and she couldn't have been any more demure and serene if she were meeting the Queen of England. They all left together in one heavily armed body. The thunderclap inside the Elena had left a mess. I rescued Massimo's leather valise from the encroaching pool of blood. My fellow patrons were bemused. They were deeply bemused, even confounded. Their options for action seemed to lack constructive possibilities. So one by one, they rose and left the bar. They left that fine old place, silently and without haste, and without meeting each other's eyes. They stepped out the jangling door and into Europe's biggest plaza. Then they vanished, each hastening toward his own private world. I strolled into the piazza, under a pleasant spring sky. It was cold that spring night, but that infinite dark blue sky was so lucid and clear. The laptop screen flickered brightly as I touched the F1 key. Then I pressed two. And then three.
There you go. Don't forget, as usual, copyright by God. Don't mess around this type. Copyright is Bruce's. Bruce, thank you so much. Man, what a, what a star. Thank you so much. And Paul, hopefully, Paul, hopefully, Paul, we can kind of, you know what I mean, sneak a few more off you there, sir. It's just, uh, it would be lovely. Do you know what I mean? I'm coming to see you, you and your sister in that chicken shop there. Man. Yes, you can feed this old fella. Keep him going. Thank you so much. So next up is an interview I did with Jill Hynerth. And Jill is a cave diver. And a cave diver, which is a, a daily job. Do you know what I mean? Just like this like claustrophobic fool here. Man, just, I cannot do anything like that. This Jill does this for, you know, a kind of a living. And it's just so exciting. And I wanted to get Jill on because I've seen this TED Talk Jill did. And it's, it's a fact, you know. And there's a few of these interviews I'm kind of doing now where... We don't even know our own planet. Do you know what I mean? And we're kind of exploring the kind of the cosmos and the galaxy, and we know more about that than our planet. And Jill's underneath the ground, you know, where we're walking, swimming in these vast caves. Just a, a fascinating, you know, a fascinating lifestyle, a fascinating job. Have a look at some of the pictures. I've got lots, Jill's put lots of pictures. I'll give us over lots of pictures there. So I'm going to kind of filter them out through the internet on kind of Facebook, you know, and kind of on Twitter and everything like that. And, you know, what I mean? it's just fast. It's just some gorgeous images there. Pop over to our site as well. I'll tell you, Into the Planet, and I'll put a link on to the site as well, but I'll mention it at the end of the interview. Now, Jill, did you really want to be, you know, because I watched your TED video and you said, you, you know, you wanted to be an astronaut when you were little. Is that really truthful? It's it's true. I I did. You know, I grew up watching uh, Apollo missions on crackly black and white televisions in the school library, and uh, and that inspired me to want to explore. Well, that's what I was, I was going to ask you. You know, when did you start cave diving, and when did the the spark, you know, the recognition thing, and you know, this is just like being an astronaut. Yeah, you know, as a as a child, I also sort of grew up watching uh, Jacques. Cousteau on television and so the underwater world was equally fascinating as well but growing up in Canada it didn't seem like either astronaut school or (laughs) or diving school was going to be in my future because it's it uh you know just wasn't really something that was available or commonplace in any of my my friends in terms of scuba diving so I didn't even learn to dive formally until I was in university and um, from the moment, absolute moment that I finally, you know, got my under uh, my open water certification, I just it changed my life. I just completely revamped everything and started to rethink my entire career path. I mean, it's hard for me being, you know, a claustrophobic freak, freak. You know what I mean? But what's the allure yeah. of diving? Do you know what I mean? Because when you watch them videos, you're scuttling through. Little gaps, which just even watching you, it's making me, you know, like get tight round the neck and everything. What is this? Because it's your, like you say, it's your job. So you're doing this every day. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's certainly not for everybody, especially anyone that has any any bit of claustrophobia in their their psyche. Um, But really, when you think about it, you know, we do know more about outer space than we do about inner space. And so the deep oceans and underwater caves on our planet are, are totally virgin and unexplored. And to me, it's an incredible opportunity to go someplace and do something that nobody's ever done before. And in my case, bring back images, you know, photography and video from those remote places and hopefully inspire people with, you know, ideas and exploration. So it's a great privilege. When did you then, Jill, decide, you know, from, 
you're training going into yeah. water to deciding it's cave diving that's got the special kick for us. Well, I always liked dry caves. So, and I always liked cozy, confined spaces. <laughs> Heaven knows why. I guess I need a shrink for that. <laughs> but um, when I did my open water class, um, it's highly uh, irregular, but I was taken into a cavern cave environment. And as soon as I got inside that space and I realized that I could move around in this three-dimensional space just inhaling to rise up and exhaling to drop down it was a whole lot easier than facing the gravity of of dry caves <laughs> and the environment just captured me captivated me man what just what a hero yard was you know I mean? just, <laughs> you know you, you mentioned you know like we know more about space you know yeah. outside have we been with caves you know have we been capturing data now you know i take it for for a while or is it just something yeah. new yeah, well, you know, honestly, when I started cave diving, I think we were perceived as, you know, adrenaline junkies just involved in some action and adventure sport. But cave divers do offer quite a bit to science. Often we become the eyes and the hands for scientists that don't have the training and background in order to go into these environments. So, yeah, I mean, we study the biology of underwater caves. We find incredible paleo remains and archaeology within caves. Um, there's, you know, animals within caves that could potentially lead to new breakthroughs in science. And then just swimming in these veins of Mother Earth helps us better understand drinking water and how it moves through the planet. And that's going to be one of the most important issues of the next century. Talk us then, Jill, if you don't mind, to, through a typical day for you at the, at, at, you know, at the office. <laughs> well, um, no day is very typical <laughs> for me. Um, I have kind of a hybrid career. I still do some teaching of the very highest levels of technical diving and using um, special life support devices called rebreathers. Uh, sometimes I'm making films and photography in underwater caves or writing articles and books. Uh, you know, just next week, I'm on my way on an expedition that's um, uh, sponsored by the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. And we're going to be exploring submerged flooded mines in Newfoundland, Canada, as well as um, some World War II shipwrecks that are just offshore. Um, and in, these, in this case, we're actually looking at the sort of cultural artifacts, the remains um, that reside within the mine when it was flooded um, over 50 years ago. I mean, you mentioned ships there, though. That must be so dangerous for you, though, is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly takes a lot of training and preparation and a good good head about you, as well as quite a bit of equipment. Uh, so it's it's not for the faint of heart, and it's not for the under-trained or under-practiced <laughs> either. Um, so, yeah, my life does revolve around continually training and learning and developing and um, maintaining my skills, yeah. You mentioned about, you know, your, your Arctic dive, Antarctic dive, you know, into like an iceberg. You wouldn't be kind of just to tell a little bit about that in, in your findings. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, in 2000, the largest iceberg in recorded history calved away from the Antarctic ice shelf in the Ross Sea. And uh, we saw the cracks developing through satellite photographs 
online and sort of tracked the progress. And the moment that this thing happened, we pitched a project to the National Geographic to go down there and be the first people to cave dive inside of icebergs. And this was a really early look at global climate change. And, you know, what happens when a big piece of ice the size of Jamaica breaks away from Antarctica with all the life on it and within it, and it starts to, you know, drift north and fall apart? And uh, so we wanted to go inside, cave dive inside this iceberg and um, see what life was there and um, even, you know, what the physical geography of this, this berg was. It was a really dangerous project. Um, and certainly a lot of unknowns since uh, nobody had ever tried to do this before, uh, but really a highlight in my exploration career. So how did you know there was there was caves there or caves big enough to kind of do these experiments or just to find out? You know, did you know this beforehand? Well, here's the honest truth. <laughs> so we hypothesized that um, that these large icebergs would have cracks and crevices that would be enlarged by the current moving through them. I mean, after all, this did slowly break off the continent, so surely there would be other cracks and crevices that we could access. Um, but it was truly a guess. When we pitched the project to National Geographic, we went in with great confidence that we would find these cave systems. But when we got down there, I mean, we didn't know until we got there <laughs> if we were going to be successful in uh, delivering on our promises. Right, so right. it was a bit of a wing and a prayer, uh, but it, it paid off. It and was just incredible. Was, was there loads of caves there, was there? Or was it just yeah. the one? No, no, there were there were lots. I mean, first of all, we had to make a journey from New Zealand, which is 12 days across the Southern Ocean through some of the worst seas on the planet. And, you know, it's a place where the storms can ring around the planet without bumping into anything to, to break up. Um, so, you know, we had 20 meter high seas just getting there for 12 days. Um, and then once we got there and we started to, you know, encounter the ice, we were getting stuck in the ice and just, just trying to get further south into the Ross Sea. Um, so 30 days into the project, we'd found a lot of little caverns and crevices and yet nothing in my mind that was a truly substantial cave system until we sort of hit pay dirt around day 30 down there <laughs> and started to find all kinds of these uh, wow. much bigger systems and yeah. what did did you find it did you find anything like profound or, or new to mankind or was everything kind of what yeah. you expected oh nothing was like we expected <laughs> at all yeah i mean it was more like going to another planet <laughs> um i think one of the most interesting things we discovered was when we were cave diving inside of an iceberg that had sort of tripped up and lodged itself on the seafloor um it had probably been in this location for a little while because on the seafloor there were places where we could get underneath the iceberg and travel through long passages with the seafloor as the bottom and then this archway of ice over top of us and the seafloor was this amazing garden of animals and vertebrates and things and um, the current that was rushing through these tunnels was you know bringing plankton and and other other uh things for the life to eat. So it was this garden of Eden beneath a life, uh, an iceberg that nobody had ever seen or documented before. Um, so that was pretty interesting. And then we also got a DNA sample from a brand new species of killer whale when we were down there too. So there were a lot of great successes on that project. Wow. 
You mentioned mm. earlier on there about you rebreathers and using all these that kind of exotic gases. And yeah. am I right in thinking you sometimes can last twenty hours down on a yeah. net? Can you tell me a little yeah. bit more about that? Sure. I mean, most people that dive use what we call traditional, you know, open circuit scuba equipment. So they breathe in from a tank and they exhale bubbles into the water column, and um, and that's great for life support, but you're only um, able to stay down as long as that single tank of gas will last. And the deeper you go, the less time you have. And then the deeper you go, the less appropriate just standard breathing air is to breathe. In fact, you, you can't below certain depths. So the rebreather device is literally like a life support gas mixing machine that you wear on your back. And it recycles every exhaled breath so that you don't waste any precious molecules of oxygen by venting them into the water column. So it, it recycles your breath and it sends it through a carbon dioxide scrubber to remove the carbon dioxide and then injects a tiny bit of oxygen back into the loop again. And then for deeper dives, we're actually mixing a, an exotic array of, of um, air plus, plus um, helium to make uh, different, different combinations that are appropriate for deep dives. So it's it's advanced technology, much like a spacesuit, really. And do you actually last, you know, do you go down for that long? Because even, you know, like an yeah. eight-hour shift would be hard you know, <laughs> on a normal day dive. Yeah, the longest mission that I was involved in um, was on an exploration project in North Florida. Uh, and our missions uh, for the team were anywhere, tw- anywhere between 22 and 23 hours long. <laughs> um, so, yeah, pretty pretty Man. intense. Jill, man, that's yeah. just unreal. Do you know what I mean? Honestly, <laughs> eight hours working in my normal day job and I need a, yeah. a lie down on the set. Hey, do you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> amazing to think what you're kind of, what you're putting your body through as well. Do you know what I mean? Are you yeah. physically shattered when you come up from a, you must be from a, like a 20 hour plus dive. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, we, it would take a whole, you know, 24 hours of, of getting the equipment ready and mixing gases and filling tanks, things like that. Um, and then, you know, you have the entire dive mission, which takes a tremendous number of volunteers to support. And then you have a couple of days to sort of rest and recover and, and regroup before you do it all over again. So about every fourth day, um, you're doing a, a big dive right, like right. that on an expedition. But, you know, you are truly um, declining through the expedition in terms of you know, your damage you're actually damaging your body um and and you know after a few months of that it's it, it's tough yeah how how long then jill do you think you know with putting yourself through under these kind of working conditions do you think you've you've got left bef- you know doing this full time <laughs> Uh, you know it's hard to say because i i don't know if there's ever been another woman who's you know had as much time underwater as I have in, in some of these extreme situations. So, uh, so it's really, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Interestingly, on this project that I'm doing uh, starting next week, we're actually going to have a team of uh, medical um, doctors, physiological researchers that are, are actually going to be doing a real battery of tests on us to see how we're coping with the decompression stress of the dives um, in really cold water. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't have any plans of stopping, and I I do have uh, I have a colleague in the UK actually who 
who cave dive into his 80s. So um, there's a good role model for me. <laughs> you, before you mentioned you're working with biologists, I was just wondering yeah. if you what what's that all that intake? Yeah, so um, some biologists are also cave divers, others are not. So sometimes I'm going into a cave to gather a sample for them that they're unable to get themselves. Um, and at other times, there are some that are cave divers who are studying um, the unique adapted animals that live within the darkness of, of the cave environment. And so they'll be collecting and I'll be shooting photographs and video as they're, as they're doing that or, or surveying um, the system so we know exactly where a particular life form came from. Uh, but pretty, pretty interesting work. I mean, many of these animals have remained unevolved for tens of millions of years, meaning the things that are swimming in the cave today are also found identical in the fossil record since before the extinction of the dinosaurs. So you have to wonder how a life form that's 65 million years old, unevolved, staying exactly the same, like what could that teach us about evolution or survival? It's, it's amazing to me. You mentioned on your TED Talk about the kind of animals, and you said, you know, you find animals in, in very young caves. You know, I'm, I'm guessing you kind of, yeah. you know, check the rocks for the, yeah. the date and that. But how, I kind of get my head around, how does animals get in there in the first place? Well, actually, we don't know. <laughs> I, I, we're, we, we're pretty much in agreement that there's a tremendous amount of life that is living sort of within the matrix of the rock and in between grains of sand within the earth. You know, if you, if you drill down deep into the earth, you know, not only will you strike oil, but you will strike life forms, animals. And um, we know so little about them right now, but many of the things that live in the darkness of caves live chemosynthetically rather than photosynthetically. They don't need sunlight to survive or create their food. And they're very similar to the animals that we find on the deep, deep ocean smoking vents. And, you know, did they migrate from those locations or is life just completely ubiquitous within the dirt of, of this earth? Uh, we don't know yet, but uh, that gives us lots to look at. <laughs> it's just, you know, it makes the mind boggle, do you know what I mean? When you kind of, when you were t doing your TED talk and you just, the wonders of it out there, do you know what I mean? You're thinking, wow, you know, how can these life forms get there? It's just the world is such yeah. a magical place. You know what I mean? We, we hardly know anything of it, you know, at the moment. True. You mentioned as well working with physicists, you know, and their yes. work on climate change, which I found was interesting. You know, you were talking about dusts coming over and everything from different countries. You wouldn't tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Um, yeah, I've uh, done quite a lot of work in um, Abaco in the Bahamas, and there's some just remarkably beautiful caves there. And in those caves, we find these um, layers of deep red colored sort of dust or, you know, clay material laid down um, within the matrix of, of what is otherwise quite bright, white, beautiful calcite formations. And um, physicists started getting interested in that because they knew um, that they would be able to sort of date that material. The way they do that is that um, they send us in to remove large um, stalagmites, the formations that are found on the floors of caves. And these formations would have been formed when the cave was dry. So a droplet of of moisture from the ceiling of a cave in a dry cave drops off the ceiling and lands on the floor and it leaves just a little deposit of, of dust or calcite behind. Well, in the case of Abaco and this 
red stuff that we find within the layers, it's actually dust from the Sahara Desert. And they can, you know, look at this dust and very clearly define that it is from the Sahara Desert. And it's been picked up and blown all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And then it's, you know, dropped down onto the surface of the land. And it's such a fine sediment that it works its way down in between the grains of sand to be deposited in these caves when they were dry. At other sea level stands, when the uh, sea levels are higher, much as they are now, these caves are filled with water. And so we could take these formations and slice them and look at them just like the rings of a tree trunk and count back in time. And we've been able to count back as far as 350,000 years in these caves and identify very clear periods of time when sea levels were dramatically lower than they are today, um, you know, in the terms of, you know, 50 to even 100 meters um, lower than they are today. So physicists are pretty interested in, in caves as a time capsule, really. I think it's fascinating as well, like you say, you know, something from one one continent can go and drift onto another. You know, it just means how, yeah. how really small the world is anyways. Do you know what I mean? And what we can oh, do, yeah. you know, how we affect it with our, you know, yeah. mankind being on the planet. Oh, yeah. Everything uh, about our water resources is, is totally shared. I mean, you know, the, the tea you may be drinking this morning could have been Shakespeare's tea, tears or, or, you know, water from an Antarctic iceberg some millennia ago. So, you know, we only have so much water on the planet and it's certainly a shared resource that travels in and out of our lives. Well, it's interesting, Jill, because I work in the water industry and part of my job is kind of making sure, that, you know, that everyone's tap, you know, when you turn your tap on, you've got water. And we mm -hmm. pull where I live on the northeast coast. We pull, we use boreholes. You know, a few, we've got a few boreholes mm -hmm. where they drill down, say, 400 meters into the yeah. rock, you know, and pull out our water from there. And it was just fascinating to kind of know, you know, somewhere in the world, you're swimming around these, you know, and mapping out <laughs> these. It's just a fascinating. <laughs> you know, we have a couple of caves here, not too far from my house, where I can swim through an uh, underwater cave system and quite deep within the cave system. I I run into the pipe from somebody's well, um, you know, that's come from their house, basically their own private well, and uh, literally we can go there and tap on the on the pipe, and I always wonder whether they're hearing it in the kitchen. <laughs> you mentioned your favorite job was when you were doing some three D mapping, mm -hmm. and you know you were using a certain machine in there as well. You would be kind enough to tell me about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, back in the late 1990s, a colleague of mine, Dr. Bill Stone, um, devised a, a, a new thing that would three-dimensionally map the cave as we swam through it. So it was sort of like driving a torpedo through the cave system. And it had um, sonar uh, capability on it. And so it could literally ping a sonar beam from the mapper to the wall and back and register that as a precise measurement. The cool thing about this mapper is that it was doing that in 32 directions, so 32 different sonar pingers four times a second, and using those little points of measurement, then it could accurately three-dimensionally map the cave. The, uh, the device required a little bit more technology, including essentially the inertial guidance system from a cruise missile <laughs> so that it could like correct basically for, for um, drift errors and understand its, its sort of uh, relative position in, in space. And uh, the end result was this incredible three-dimensional map of a system 
Plus, since we also pinged through the rock to the surface, we could register that um, with the things that were above us. And so now we could know exactly where we were swimming through the earth. And we could use that um, to prove to, you know, land use um, managers, things like that, exactly where the drinking water conduits were and and really, you know, how we should protect those um, precious locations. That's what I was going to ask you, you know, I mean, I- it would be great. Yeah, you find out the size, you know, you have a picture of the cave. But I was wondering, you know, for what purpose? But there mm. you go, you've just said it there. That's exactly, you know. Yeah, at the time, there was actually a, a company that was interested in putting in a new petrol filling station uh, near the location that we were working. And uh, and we realized that that would be directly on top of a major drinking water conduit that serviced the capital city of, of Florida. And so we took this, you know, scientific recommendations and said, listen, you know, you've got to find another place. Um, You know, we're not anti-development, but it just can't go here. And it worked. So it's a really important tool. And you you, you actually said as well that it's morphed and and there's a chance where it could go into space onto Europa's yeah, tell, yeah. Tell them a little bit about that. <laughs> so Dr. Bill Stone has continued working on this device now for about 20 years in total. And the device no longer needs a, a cave diver to pilot it, which is unfortunate for me. <laughs> but it is a self-swimming autonomous vehicle. So it's like a robot. It doesn't need a cable or a tether tied to it. It can swim off into a cave system and now do its mapping as well as many other things like it has a a manipulator arm and it can take samples of life forms it might find and it does this all using artificial intelligence it basically you know follows its nose follows the flow into the cave or or you know tries to you know map as much of a surface as it can and when it needs to be recharged it swims home so this device has been tested extensively now in Alaska and Antarctica and Mexico, all over the world in some challenging environments with the ultimate goal to send it to Jupiter's moon Europa. So Europa has an ice-covered ocean, and this thing will be you know, dropped on the surface of the ice. A nuclear melt probe will melt down through you know, what is, I think, I can't recall exactly, but perhaps a mile of ice. And then the robot can swim off into the ocean and make its map and detect life and then send back the telemetry to, to us. So it'll be a, an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah. just like staggering. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the, the thing as well, that like you were piloting this, you know, many, not many years ago, but you yeah. know, you were actually yeah. pushing it around under the ground as well. Do you know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember the, the the moment that that I first heard about the possibility of doing this. It was back in 1995 around a campfire in the Sierra Madres Mountains in central Mexico. And we'd just been trying to map a cave where we'd experienced some significant mudslides that had completely obliterated any visibility within the cave system. And I was on this project with, with Bill Stone when he said, how would you like to map a cave without ever seeing it? And, you know, in the moment I was like, well, you know, great, Bill, fantastic idea. But, uh, you know, that doesn't seem possible. And two years later, he had built the first three-dimensional mapper that could map in the darkness. 
it's just, it's staggering, to be quite honest. Yeah. And, and you must have chilled as well. I'm not saying you've been in the industry for, you know, but you must have seen just technology just, it's just amazing yeah. the way technology has kind of upped its game. Well, Bill also on that same project, um, uh, he had already designed um, four different uh, sort of prototype levels of the Cislunar Rebreather, um, also to be used both as a space life support, so for spacewalk basically technology, but also to be experimented uh, on in in cave diving. So at that very same campfire, uh, we talked about about rebreather technology and how we would use it to enhance exploration as well. And, and it was so new back, back then. And yet now it's, it's becoming quite common in the technical diving community. Everybody's interested in this and it's accessible now with many different companies um, making commercial models available to sport divers. Jill, it's been, honestly, it's been an honor to talk to you. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, I, I watched the kind of your, your TED talk and what I want to, you know, have you ever seen, did you ever watch that back? Because you had, you know, I don't know how many students in there. Normally students are kind of all over the place, fidgeting phones and everything. <laughs> but every one of them students was like, why eyes were like wide open, yeah. just like listen, gobsmacked. Do you know what I mean? Just the kind of the stories we you're telling. And I just thought, oh yeah. man, to have that gift to kind of tell y- your adventures. Do you know what I mean? And, and not one, oh, not yeah. one of them. Looked at the phone, texted, you know what I mean? It was just like excellent. Well, that's the best part of my job, really, because I, I, you know, I think about myself as that child that wanted to be an astronaut, and I can now just kind of stand confidently and tell those kids in the audience that they can do anything they want to do, anything they put their mind to, and and there are technologies that are just in their imaginations right now that could be real viable things in in a few short years. It's a really, really exciting time to be an explorer. Jill, what can I say? Honestly, I'm honoured to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, it's it's been wonderful. Wonderful chatting with you. Thanks. Take good care. All right, you too. There you go. It was just so lovely talking to Jill. And like I say, I'd pop over to our website, Into the Planet, and, you know, even drop drop Jill a, a, an email. Do you know what I mean? Just a, just in my eyes, honestly, just what a hero, man. Just, it's something that was just nerve-wracking to me. You know, I, can it even do that? You know what I mean? Can it even, even, we went on holiday once and there was like a, a trip down like a tin mine, and I couldn't even get in that. You know what I mean? I'm thinking, yeah, man. And I know you just got to conquer your fears. All right, man, you just conquer your fears and do it. Even a couple of weeks ago when we went to Beamish Museum, you know, there's, there's a kind of there's a, a shaft down there, and Jill's going down these shafts that are full of water. And it's just, you know, and what I love as well is like these things, what you're saying, you know, kind of now this thing's morphed what she was using the kind of 3d camera and it's on its way up to kind of europa do you know what i mean and or you know there's a chance of it going up there man man and even just that concept do you know what i mean like i say some places in this world we know hardly anything about and yet we've got the skill and the technology to strap something to a rocket that'll fly unmanned under the frozen ice seas of a, a, a planet or a moon, you know, off Jupiter. <laughs> I think I just have a cup of tea and a, a sit down. Jill, 
honestly, big thank you for coming on and kind of sharing your kind of experiences in your life. It's so lovely. Come over and have a look at the website. Loads of photographs, loads of photographs on Facebook and everything like that. There is some stunning shots there. So that is today's show. I hope you will, or I hope you have enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of it's just fascinating, kind of the stories we're getting at the minute. With thanks to Jeremy and you know the kind of the interviews that are popping up as well. Now listen, look out for next week. We have, in my eyes, one of the greatest writers. Do you know what I mean? And I've just recently discovered him. Do you know he's been there for a. a, a I'm not to say a long, long time, but we have a major, major writer there who I read one of his books few months ago now probably six months ago and i was just blown away by the kind of inventiveness you know what i mean and i'm reading all sorts of kind of high up new end stuff there now that book there i'm not gonna tell you what it is because it'll give away who the author is do you know what i mean i want you to come back but that book there was just stunning in science fiction terms ideas concepts characterization the whole lot was in there we have a story by him next week so look out for that Big major writer in my eyes and in Jeremy's eyes as well. So don't forget, if you want to kind of, you know, vote for us at the Hugo Wars Best Fan Cast, that would be an honour and a pleasure to have your vote. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.